Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. Legislative Initiatives on Prenatal Alcohol and Drug Use A new state task force on prenatal substance use disorder, or SUD, will likely consider whether to end mandated reporting of SUD to child protection, both prenatally and at birth. Medical associations' policy positions uniformly state that mandated reporting of prenatal SUD inhibits women from seeking medical care. And while the research isn't as definite as they say, creative outreach efforts to engage high-risk women in prenatal care may be the best overall option for protecting children. Other legislative proposals would severely limit mandated reporting of newborns who are withdrawing from drugs or alcohol. So in contrast, we support intensive non-voluntary services to address SUD at birth because it's well known that prenatal alcohol abuse can lead to fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And while the impact of prenatal drug use is less clear, the study that we cite in our blog shows that this behavior may also cause developmental damage. So this is in the context of a big push to change statutes regarding mandated reporting of substance use during pregnancy and at the time of birth. The outcome this year was that a bill was passed. It's House File 2095 and Senate File 2543, if you want to look it up, to establish a task force that will look into this issue. Now, we should note first that we have some concerns about the membership of this task force. It does not include any child advocates or advocates for children with FASD or fetal alcohol syndrome disorders. So we are going to be watching the process to ensure that ample opportunity is made available for public input and that that input is considered seriously. Adding people to the task force may not be an option because the membership is spelled out in detail in the statute. So prior to the task force being introduced, a different bill was proposed that would place a number of obstacles in the way of primary care providers reporting substance abuse both prenatally and perinatally. That bill has been withdrawn in favor of the task force, but it's worth noting because it could be reintroduced next year if the task force doesn't include the provisions that the the authors want. Now, I want to note that I am aware consciously of using the term substance abuse at points in this blog where it is appropriate because even though the favorite term of our currently is substance use disorder or SUD, I'm concerned that only using the term SUD may suggest that people are only victims of excessive drug use when in fact people often have at least some level of agency. For example, they can choose to get prenatal care or not. They can choose to get treatment for their addiction or not. 
And my experience in doing direct work with street youth is that almost everyone has some agency, in other words, some ability to take steps, however small, that will make them more independent. Okay, so this bill that was withdrawn strikes language from the law that would give infant withdrawal symptoms, known as neonatal abstinence syndrome, or NAS, as a reason for a report to child protection. It changes the process from reporting to notification and while anyone can, quote, notify child protection of a substance abuse issue, only a physician, nurse practitioner, or physician's assistant is authorized to claim harm to a, newborn's child, to a newborn child's health or safety or development. Others who are currently required to report or notify, such as RNs, may notify but not claim harm. Seems, frankly, like odd language, but we're not experts in this field. Uh, uh, and as a result, we don't really know for sure what the intent of the language is, but it appears to be to leave child protection with fewer grounds for intervening. Then regarding newborns, the legislation requires there to be other reasons to report child maltreatment other than, quote, just positive toxicology tests, medical delays, or fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. All of these, to me, seem reason enough to get some, some oversight of this helpless newborn who otherwise is going to be sent home to a precarious situation. Similarly, toxicology reports for both infant and mother can only be for the purposes of medical treatment, not for reporting to child maltreatment. And before a woman receives a toxicology screen or allows one for her newborn, she must give both written and oral informed consent. So we would have serious concerns about these proposals being included in either the recommendations from the task force or being reintroduced as legislation in the 2024 session. The purpose of these restrictions overall appears to be to just make it more difficult to get mothers and newborns into the child protection system, but this may be an exercise in futility. SUD is usually one of a constellation of issues that occur together and contribute to child neglect. As a result, according to a study by Prindle, Hammond, and Putner Hornstein, which is entitled Prenatal Substance Exposure Diagnosed at Birth and Infant Involvement with Child Protection Services, 61% of children born with NAS end up in the child protection system within a year anyway, and 29% have an out-of-home placement. So instead of trying to keep women from getting involved with child protection while they are still in the hospital, activists for women and child advocates probably be better off working together to make sure that intensive services are available starting in the hospital to women who are struggling with these issues. These could include timely outpatient treatment, an early learning scholarship for high-quality child care, and enrollment in an intensive home visiting program that includes social services support and parenting skills training. As mentioned in the blog, Virtually all of the associations represented different phys physician specialties as well as nurses believe strongly that requiring medical personnel to report prenatal drug abuse is counterproductive in that it keeps women from getting prenatal care. So these include the American Nurses Association, the American College of Gynecologists and Obstetricians, and the American Academy of Family Practice Physicians. But some of our reading from the research sent to us by physicians seems to be less clear-cut. The article, and this is a long, long 
title for this article, but it is State Policies Targeting Alcohol Use During Pregnancy and Alcohol Use Among Pregnant Women, 1985 to 2016, colon, Evidence from the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System. So this long title paper takes a deep dive into alcohol abuse during pregnancy, and it breaks down policies by states into supportive, punitive, and no policies at all. And the results are mixed. On page three of the article, it says, and I'm quoting here, relative to having no policies, supportive policy environments were associated with more any drinking, meaning any drinking at all, but not with binge or heavy drinking. So that means supportive policies encourage moderate drinking, but not heavy drinking. And it goes on to say, and I'm quoting again, of individual supportive policies, only the following relationships were statistically significant. Mandatory warning signs was associated with lower odds of binge drinking. Priority treatment for pregnant women and women with children was associated with higher odds of any drinking. So this means, I think, in English that warning labels like on cigarettes help avoid binge drinking, but policies that give priority to pregnant women actually increase drinking in general, although not necessarily heavy drinking. Are you with me so far? Finally, the article states that relative to no policies, punitive policy environments were also associated with more drinking, but not with binge or heavy drinking. So states with an overall punitive approach encouraged drinking overall, but didn't worsen binge or heavy drinking. And finally, the article says that, quote, of individual punitive policies, only child abuse and neglect was associated with lower odds of binge and heavy drinking. Mixed policy environments were not associated with any alcohol outcome. So what this means is that simply having a law in the books that SUD during pregnancy is considered child maltreatment somehow had the effect of reducing binge and heavy drinking, although it's not clear why, because it's not connected to practices such as whether there was mandated reporting or if SUD was criminalized. So the net result of all of this is that, as the authors state in their summary, most policies targeting alcohol use during pregnancies do not appear to be associated with less alcohol consumption. In brief, it's a bit of a muddle. There doesn't seem to be as clear a relationship between policies around mandated reporting as the medical association statements would suggest. And while an aggressive outreach strategy seems on balance to be the most promising approach, it seems like the alternative of mandating medical personnel to report substance abuse uh, during pregnancy to child protection might not make things as bad as the medical associations are saying. And I think it's always important to keep at the front of mind that FASD is a belt that can't be unrung. The developmental damage to a child just can't be repaired later. So perhaps the best we can do with the state of knowledge at this point is to promote outreach efforts while keeping a watchful eye on the research and be open to more restrictive reporting policies should the data start to support that. Now, the one complete exception to this whole line of thinking is the process of civil commitments for SUD. Civil commitments apply to all citizens, not just pregnant women. There's a body of law and a process and a constellation of agencies and services built around involuntary commitments in situations where people are a danger to themselves or others. Physicians, child protection units, and social service agencies don't really have a role in that process or any leverage to influence its decisions kind of has a life of its own. 
So assuming that the medical associations are correct, the sensible strategy would be to put as much effort as possible, as we've said, into creative outreach to high-risk pregnant women so they can get the prenatal care they need for themselves and the child. I recall from some work I did years ago that the public health nurses had devised strategies for doing just that and had some significant successes. And I would love to see some current research on this topic to see if that is held up over time. It seems like this scenario where mandated reporting is not required of physicians uh, means that they could have a conversation with their patients saying that, look, while we don't have to report you for SUD while you're pregnant, once you give birth, child protection is almost certain to get involved. And I think that would help make it clear that it's to the mother's benefit to work with the physician to do whatever is necessary to ensure that the child is born drug-free. Another area of controversy is whether prenatal drug abuse has long-term developmental consequences. The physicians we have talked with about this say there's not very good information one way or the other about this issue. Now, I have to say I have trouble understanding that in several respects. First, it just simply doesn't make common sense that ingesting a powerful narcotic, for example, which can easily pass over the placenta to the fetus, would not have some detrimental effect. And secondly, Taking a position that we shouldn't have policies to intervene in prenatal drug use strikes me as similar to the situation with hazardous chemicals. For decades, companies like 3M got away with pumping PFCs into our groundwater with the argument that it wasn't yet proven that they did any harm. Now, according to an estimate prepared last week for the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, it did a lot of harm and it's going to cost at least get this $14 billion to clean up this particular hazardous waste mess, and that's just in this state. So here we are taking a similar argument with the lives of children saying we can't, we can stop worrying about prenatal opioid methamphetamine use because it hasn't yet been proven that it does much harm. And even that's questionable. Perhaps there is some proof of harm. There's a link in the blog to an article entitled, and these you know, articles have long titles, is entitled Developmental Consequences of Fetal Exposure to Drugs, colon, What We Know and What We Still Must Learn, end quote. And this article summarizes current knowledge about this topic. I, I recommend if you click on the link, go straight to figure three, which summarizes what is known about the impact of various drugs plus alcohol and nicotine and others on the fetus. All of this is to say in sum that in the immediate term, the most prudent policy may be to maximize efforts to engage women in prenatal care when they are abusing alcohol or drugs. Secondly, that we should weigh our policies more strongly in favor of infants once they are born, and that we should be alert to adjust these policies as we get better information about SUD in pregnant women. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.org.
there, you can sign up for our email list, read all of our eBrief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.